Good morning, everybody. If you please would turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 13. It's worth mentioning up front that it's warm in here. <laughs> um, it reminds me, Dad, doesn't it, of the old Sioux Falls Christian gym back when basketball camps would be firing up and we'd open exterior doors and get the fans going and it brings back some memories. And if you haven't, if the air does kick on and you haven't experienced that event, just be prepared that it will sound like the roof is falling down. Take, you know, take heed, it is not, <laughs> and it will hopefully cool down. If it kicks on, just FYI. Question for you. Have you ever been, or are you now, afraid of the dark? Are you afraid of the dark? Do you guys remember that 90s show? <laughs> It was terrifying. I admit that I was definitely afraid of the dark as a little boy. I was terrified to go outside, terrified to go into a dark basement or go outside at night at my grandfather's farm. There's just something about the dark, especially when we're little kids, that has an immediate sense of foreboding and fear, does it not? You don't know what's out there. And I recently viewed a, a documentary all about free diving. Uh, free diving is the extreme sport where divers hold their breath for upwards of five minutes in order to dive as deep as possible, sometimes over 200 meters down into the depths. One diver was describing the experience of their descent and some of the physics involved in that. She talked about how at a certain depth, the pressure of the ocean outweighs the buoyancy of your compressed lungs. Thus, you reach a point where you just don't have to swim anymore, but let the ocean push you down into the depths where light can no longer penetrate, and the diver sees nothing but darkness. Now, some of those divers describe that very experience as having almost like a tranquil or serene effect. Just let your mind go and let yourself fall. But some divers also express having a terrifying effect. Even world record holding divers have reported of seeing things in the dark they know is not actually there, causing their heart rate to quicken and forcing them back to the surface. And in Psalm 13, David seems to be experiencing a similar dreadful experience. There are many moments in his life that could occasion such an outcry of despair from him, like the endless hunts of Saul for his life, the betrayals he experienced from within his own family, the endless Philist, uh, Philistine pressure. And if you just had a cursory idea of who David is, you might only know of him as the brave shepherd who killed Goliath, or the conquering king of the Philistines, or the dancing, joyous man after God's own heart. But it is here in the Psalms, particularly in his lament Psalms, that David exposes his heart, his affections, his fears, his terror, and ultimately his hope to God. Of course, it's an incredible kindness of God that we are given such a treasure trove in the Psalms. I mean, imagine if we didn't have the Psalms. In the Psalms, we can locate ourselves in them, in their highs and in their lows. And it's in Psalm 13 that we witness a particularly deep low of David. But unlike other laments, this psalm does not stay in the depths of despair. After reaching the bottom, 
David turns his face back to where he knows where the light is and begins the long ascent back up to the surface, kicking against all the pressing circumstances that tempt him to despair and to give in. Faith is at the center of this prayer, and we would do well to to glean lessons from David in the midst of these chaotic circumstances. One author writes about this psalm, it begins with a deep sigh, followed by a gentle prayer, and concludes with great joy. So let us hear from David this morning, knowing that it's not only David we hear from, but from God himself. So out of reverence for his word, would you please rise, if you're able, as I read Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says, I have prevailed over him. And lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word We need you now to open our eyes, to turn your face toward us so that we might gaze upon your beauty expressed in your word. Give us hearts to feel and eyes to see and ears to hear all that you have for us in this wondrous book we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So Psalm 13 is clearly a psalm of lament. And these psalms, these lament psalms, could be defined as someone, usually David, expressing distress or sorrow and asking for divine help. Lament can be, that can be a hard word to get our heads around. I think we know what it means, but it can be hard to conceptualize. In the Greek language, there are 18 different words used to convey the idea of Lament, and these words vary in their precise meaning, but they include words like sorrow and wailing and discouragement, to cry out in the verb form, to be distressed, to sigh and to groan, and wretched and grief. All of those words can help contribute to kind of a word picture of what we mean when we say that Psalm 13 is a psalm of lament. It was a very real and present darkness for David. But as we see in reading Psalm 13, it doesn't stay in the depths of sorrow. So so my aim this morning, my humble appeal to you today, is to set forth the example of David through the inspired word of God in order to persuade you that there is hope. No matter the darkness, You can be sustained and grow in the midst of terrifying circumstances and unthinkable suffering. And don't you want that hope? My friends, I believe not only can you have it, but in Christ, you already do. So, 
Here's what I think this text is saying. In our darkest moments, our sovereign Lord is faithful to sustain weary souls, resulting in faith-filled praise. In our darkest moments, our sovereign Lord is faithful to sustain weary souls, resulting in faith-filled praise. So as we ascend out of the depths, we're going to see it in three different stages. First, we'll look at the pressing question. Second, we'll look at the critical petition. And then finally, the faith-filled resolution. So first, the pressing question. It's not hard to see in looking at the first couple verses of Psalm 13 what is emphatic in this psalm. David is asking, he is begging to know how long. How long? That question is repeated no less than four times in two verses and at the very beginning of each line. The position and repetition of that phrase shows that it is forefront in David's mind. Either this distress and opposition is intense or it's just been a long season of crying out with no response. And probably both. This repeated address, it's a rhetorical question. You can feel that. By asking How long, O Lord? David is not really expecting an answer, but is making a point and describing his emotions. Namely, he is feeling abandoned, isolated, desolate, and alone. Now, as Christians, right, we know the answer to this question. Of course you're not alone, David. Don't you know that God is always with us, that he will never forsake us or leave us, and that we need not be afraid? Come on, David, just cheer up, right? Of course that's all true, but it's missing the point. And look at the very first line in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, do you notice something odd there? That that sentence, it's, it's broken up. It's incomplete. It's broken off before finishing the idea of how long until God delivers him. Breaking off a sentence is a way of expressing extreme emotion. God knows precisely what the afflicted mean when they cry out, how long, O Lord? And feeling, not necessarily logic, is what shapes this outcry. And maybe you can relate. You've been a Christian a long time. Maybe You have degrees in theology or ministry or maybe you do or worked in ministry. But when suffering really hits, when friends turn on you, when you get news that shatters hopes and destroys dreams, whatever that emotion we experience in that moment, we could call it lament, that it just wells up in us. It's like it bypasses our brain and we feel it in our souls. It's not logical or precise, but it is powerful. And we can see it here as David is pressing God by asking, how long? Will it be like this forever? Why does this keep happening to me, to to us? I cannot endure this anymore. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've asked that question before. Maybe you've asked it recently, and maybe you're asking it right now. The repeated question is powerful enough, but the four phrases that follow, each refrain of how long, 
can illuminate for us and analyze the distress that David is feeling. It's not clear, again, which event in David's life has brought him to this point. This is not Psalm 51, which is part of the inspired text, the occasion, which says a confession for his adultery with Bathsheba. But the clauses following the how long give us some lessons. I've got three lessons from these that I want to share with you. Lesson one, whenever you feel abandoned by God, pray to God. Notice that David is asking a rhetorical question, but he's not asking it into nothing, right? As if he's just yelling for anyone to hear. Will anyone answer me? He addresses his plea to the Lord. All caps, Yahweh, the covenantal name for God, the one who declared in Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So David is feeling forgotten like the Lord has turned his back on him, like the divine favor of the Lord that was promised to him in this covenantal relationship, it's, it's turned away, leaving nothing but his back, a picture of dejection. And by including the adverb forever, David indicates that he does not see any hope of change. Again, it's easy to sit here and correct David's theology, but that's not the point of a psalm, right? Look at what Calvin writes when commenting on this, this opening verse. He says, here, David speaks not so much according to the opinion of others as according to the feeling of his own mind when he complains of being neglected by God. Not that the persuasion of the truth of God's promises was extinguished in his heart or that he did not repose himself on his grace, but when we are for a long time weighed down by calamities, and when we do not perceive any sign of divine aid, this thought unavoidably forces itself upon us that God has forgotten us. The point of this psalm is not a theological treatise, but a song that describes his feelings. And he feels the walls pressing in and the darkness overwhelming him. Like, like a free diver, he can't breathe, but all around him are shadows and darkness, and the surface feels like a million miles away. But David will not be distracted. He will not turn his face away, but he will look to the heavens, for it is only from there that if any help is to come, it's to come from the heavens. His frustration, his fears, they are Godward, are they not? And as we will see later in the psalm, that will have an effect. Second lesson from these refrains. Whenever you feel at the end of yourself, pray to God. The third refrain of how long, it shows his, his personal frustration. When, when forced to take counsel within himself, within his very soul, he finds nothing hopeful. He only finds sorrow. It's like he's made attempt after attempt to remedy the situation himself, but to no avail. So there's like an, an emotional weight, a grief that produces sorrow daily and relentlessly. And have you ever found yourself in a, a similar situation? This, this tangible frustration that just nothing seems to go right, no matter how good your intentions. I think I've experienced that recently. It just seems like every single house project I work on, the house is actively fighting me. <laughs> it, it, just no matter how simple or menial the task, it's just met with incredible resistance. And it's just, 
frustrating to no end. And maybe for you it's a work situation that it, it just doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. And, and, and you can just tell. You have this pit in your stomach that this is going to end badly. And nothing you do to remedy the situation is going to work. Maybe you've longed for something. Something good. Something Wonderful, and it just feels like door after door after door is slammed in your face. Follow the example of David. Cry out to God. See, when we feel helpless, it's because we are. Our sovereign Lord sits in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. So when we come to an end of ourselves, it's because we are finite creatures. Flesh and blood really are of no help of all. So Avail yourself of the one who can act. We need the Spirit to give us life. Third and final lesson here in this opening stanza. Whenever you feel like your enemies are prevailing, pray to God. Not only does it seem that the enemies are present in these first few verses and are waging war against David, but that final refrain of how long shows that it seems like they're not only winning, they're gloating in their victory. Enemies in the Psalms, they're typically understood as the ones who, they're not just enemies, they're the ones who hate the psalmist, and more specifically, the psalmist's faith. The enemies in view are not just anyone who opposes David, like for his foreign policy or his choice of music at the temple. They are the enemies of God. That's what David despises, that the enemies of the Lord would prevail and mock and glory in their victory. There arises within David some serious demands for justice. Someone has to right this wrong. Listen to how David views the enemies of God in Psalm 139. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemy. Again, David is taking inventory of the situation around them. He feels alone, like there's nobody trustworthy around him to encourage him or to give him any advice. And the people who hate God are winning. And asking God how long, there just doesn't seem to be any end in sight. But remember, in prayer, we are communing with the king who, as, as Ryan preached last week, he sits on the throne, even now, right now, putting all enemies under his feet. He has not been and will not be defeated. So take heart, David. Take heart, dear friends, and hold fast. David then pivots from interrogating God to an appeal. Number two, the critical petition. Verses three and four, it no longer are rhetorical questions being employed, but genuine and sincere pleas to God that he would provide relief and protection. But by asking God to consider him, what he means is that he's begging God to look at him. Remember, he is feeling alone and abandoned as if the very face of God has turned away. And so David cries out, look, consider me. Turn your face toward, toward me. See me. Answer me. And these cries, they seem desperate. 
they almost seem irreverent. Again, we are witnessing the, the intersection of, of orthodoxy, right, uh, and true doctrinal accuracy and personal, intimate, soul-deep experience of sorrow. Of course we know God is sovereign and that he hasn't left us, but it sure feels like it. But notice, and don't miss this, what comes next. He says in Psalm 13, 3a, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. David still understands, despite the disequilibrating experiences, that he belongs to God. And this informs and fuels everything that flows out of this psalm. He is calling for an audience of the Most High, and what an audacious claim that is. One that only someone who can claim the Lord as my God can make. And look at what he's asking in verse 3b. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This, this feeling of abandonment has the effect of feeling like death. What does it mean to have the, the Lord of life turn away from you? Death. That's what it feels like. That is darkness. That is utter darkness. And what the psalmist gives a remedy. God begs, David begs God to light up his eyes. What does that mean? Well, the image of light, right, it's used all throughout the scripture. So it could mean a lot of things, right? Illuminate of the mind, restoration of physical strength from an illness, some moral energy. But what I think David has in view here is he's asking God to banish the darkness of his isolation by giving light by turning his face back to him. He feels as though the Lord has turned away, so he feels like he is cursed. So he begs God to turn back to him. Ultimately, what he's asking for is the blessing given to Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. You know this. The Lord bless you and keep you. Now look, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David wants that peace. And he knows that that peace, that life, that light can only come in the presence of God. He wants that more than anything else. Look at how John says it in 1 John 1.5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Remember, David's in considerable anguish. He fears that if God does not act, he will sleep this sleep of death. He feels forsaken, left out in the dark, and again, we are meant to locate ourselves in the psalm with each of our own stories, but this psalm is not given to us so that we can rationalize or reason our way out of painful circumstances. No, the purpose of this psalm, particularly in these opening stanzas, is to give us, to give you and to me, the words we need to bring that anguish to the one who knows our frame and knows all that is in us. So when trials abound, it, it, when it feels like the pressures of life, like the ocean, are, are pushing us down, the gracious gift from the Lord is meant to be a means by which we can cry out to God. Look at us. Consider us. 
don't you see? Will it, will it be like this forever? How long? David's final appeal to God to motivate him to act is not just to rescue him from what feels like the jaws of death, but to vindicate the name of God from the enemies who seek not only to prevail, but to rejoice. Humiliation, not just of the singer, but of God himself is at stake. The enemies sense that this man, this David, he's at his end. He is on the ropes. He is shaken, and they are eager to make a name for themselves by shaming the Lord's anointed. But suddenly, like the first dawn on the third day in the east, hope rises, and the tone completely changes. Number three, the faith-filled resolution. While the first four verses of this psalm are intense and emotional, there's this discernible shift that takes place in verse five. Instead of agony, all of a sudden there is confidence. Out of despair and, and desolation, we see delight. Out of the chaos of David's circumstances and of uh, the, the chaos of our circumstances, we hear resolution in the voice of the psalmist. You can almost hear it through, through gritted teeth, can't you? Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the midst of our suffering, it's just so easy to become laser focused on the destabilizing events and circumstances and, and people all around us. But what we see in David is that when we are faced with fear about what the future will hold, remember, how long will this suffering continue? Will you act? Will it be like this forever? The remedy is to look back at all that God has done to inform what we will do in the future. The first two words of verse 5 change the entire tone of this psalm. And we and are fronted at the very front and placed in a position of emphasis. But I. The, the focus shifts not on what God is seemingly not doing, but to how the sufferer is going to respond. Look at the three verbs connected in David to David in these first three, excuse me, two verses. I have trusted, I shall rejoice, I will sing. To look forward, David looks back. Instead of looking down at his circumstances, he looks up where he knows the surface is and where the hope has rested all these years. He has trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord, revealed to Israel in that great covenantal promise in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is the foundation of everything. Who God is and who he has revealed himself to be and then shown himself to be faithful. That's the foundation and the hope that David resolves himself to. Derek Kidner says it so well when he says, however great the pressure, the choice is still David's to make, not the enemy's. 
and God's covenant remains. So the psalmist entrusts himself to this pledged love and turns his attention not to the quality of his faith, but to its object and its outcome, which he has every intention of enjoying. So the assurance of our faith is not found in how strongly we feel in any given moment. If it's up to emotions, it's all over the place. We can feel terror, and then to be told to fear something else is just impossible. But given how often I feel all over the place, that would be very unassuring, right? The confidence of our faith is not found in the quality of it, but in the object of that faith, in the person and the work of Christ Jesus our Lord. He who was actually abandoned by God. Who looked up to the heavens and really could ask, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is he we have communion with. And that produces faith. We can actually sing my song when enemies surround me, my hope when trials of sorrow rise, my joy when trials abound. His faithfulness is our refuge in the night. And regardless of your circumstances, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you can look back, if only to your miraculous and gracious conversion, and reflect on how God has been faithful to you in the past. Each of us, regardless of how trying our current moment is, we can say with David that he has dealt bountifully with me. And for those of us here today who can say that, we, we have an assurance in view that David could only dream of. Our security is in the person and work of Christ. Look at how Paul puts it in Colossians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's amazing grace. That is miraculous. That is steadfast love. In Christ, God has answered all of David's how longs with an emphatic answer. How long will he forget you? No more. How long will he hide his face from you? No. The Father turned his face away from the suffering Christ on that cross so that in union with the risen Christ, he might turn his face toward you. How long will his enemies prevail? He who sits on the throne, the Lion of Judah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, laughs in derision as the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. And he has put those enemies to open shame. And at the cross, he triumphed over them. And of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. That is being dealt with bountifully. And it is from this foundation, like, like kicking off from the bottom of the ocean that propels David into resolution about his future action. Because of all that he knows God to be, he will rejoice and he will sing. The silence of isolation is broken by the song of hope 
that wells up in David as he thinks on the wondrous salvation of God. And the same can be true of you and me, my friends. You too, in the midst of your sorrow and suffering, can praise God for all that he has done and all that he has promised to do for you in the future. And don't you want that kind of hope? Don't you want to be faithful in your suffering and sorrow? My friends, avail yourselves of Christ and all that he has accomplished for you. Never forget that he was crushed for your iniquities. He really did bear your griefs and carry, notice, your sorrows. Christ was pierced for your transgressions so that you might have peace. And by his wounds, you really have been healed. He, the man of sorrows, took on our iniquities so that he could put them in the grave. So that we might be brought near to the Father. So cry out to the Lord. And you may really find that your crying really can turn to singing. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Apart from you, we really do have a hopeless future. There really are tides of of sorrow and trials and enemies amongst us and around us and we feel the walls pressing in. And yet in Christ you've given us hope. And not a blind or wishful hope, but a secured hope. Help us to see Jesus as that hope. The one in whom we can rest the one we can actually have joy in the midst of our sorrow. We can actually sing in the midst of our fears. This feels impossible, God, on our own. So we're looking to you to produce this in us. We need more and more of your spirit. We do come thirsty, and you have promised us living water that can satisfy God, would you give that to us this morning, right now? And as we look at this week, and as we look at this month, and as this new school year, and this year, and as anniversaries come and go, and dates come and go, and tides of sorrow continue to rise, God, you have promised to set our feet on solid ground. So we rest on the finished work of Christ this morning, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.